0: Turn in, in your Bible to Paul's letter to the Galatians, Galatians chapter six. As we uh, continue our study, we're coming near to the end of this excellent little book. And uh, on study break, I was looking at um, uh, what to preach on next, and I've uh, I've settled on the book of Leviticus. Uh, I've never been through the book of Leviticus. I'm sure some of you are. Uh, Most of you probably have not heard a sermon series on Leviticus. Uh, Some of you might have raised eyebrows, uh, Leviticus. Uh, But it's God's Word, and I'm excited. There's things in there that uh, are meant for our uh, edification and for our better understanding of specifically the holiness of God and what it means to be a holy people of God. And so looking forward to that study with you um, after we're done with Galatians. Uh, Galatians chapter 6, I'm going to actually begin in chapter 5. And I'm going to begin reading to verse 16, just so we catch the context. And we'll be looking at our text. Actually, begins at 5:25. I think that um, holds better together. Let's start at verse 16, and let's hear God's word. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. "...that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires." If we live by the Spirit, or uh, since we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. God in heaven, we now come and we believe that you've given us these scriptures to bless us, to feed us, to nourish our soul, to teach us the ways of Christ and how to follow him. And we ask that your Spirit, that um, we read about here this morning, would be at work today, molding us into the likeness of our Savior. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've entitled uh, the message this morning, The Spirit-Filled Life, or The Spirit-Filled Christian Life. Uh, it's, it's not a term that we are familiar with, that we use that often, though it is very common In charismatic circles I uh, wrote in my pastor's post about a month ago or so about my uh, foray into the uh, the charismatic world uh, at First Assembly of God I I attended there and uh, was going to a Friday night Pentecostal Bible study and uh, one of the things that struck me most prominently was how uh, often they talked about the Holy Spirit Uh, they talked about uh, the gifts of the Spirit and the baptism of the Spirit and being led by the Spirit uh, it was clear to me that they understood the Christian life uh, to be, uh, in essence, a spirit-filled, spirit-led, spirit-empowered life. And I have to confess that that was a new way of thinking about the Christian life for me. I thought the Christian life is following Jesus and, and uh, believing in Christ, and of course that's true. We just didn't really talk much about um, the Christian life being a life empowered and led by the Holy Spirit. And that's, that's somewhat unfortunate because as I read through the New Testament and, and Paul's letters particularly, uh, it's, it's clear to me that, that Paul thought of the Christian life as a Spirit-filled, Spirit-empowered life. Uh, Paul says in verse 25 of our text, we live by the Spirit. We live by the Spirit as Christians. In Romans chapter 8 verse 9, uh, Paul says, if anyone does not have the Spirit. He does not belong to Christ. The Christian life is, by definition, a Spirit-filled, Spirit-wrought, Spirit-empowered life. But what does that actually mean? What does it look like? Well, uh, for the charismatic folks, uh, it meant uh, speaking in tongues, uh, experiencing signs and wonders, and having um, deep emotional experiences of God's presence in your life, um, wonderful times of devotion. Um, The primary evidence of the Spirit's presence and work in your life would be personal, emotional, and devotional. Uh, I think we would um, think similarly, at least on that last point there, that if I asked you to describe a deeply spiritual person, or if I would ask you, are you a deeply spiritual person, your thoughts would probably tend towards your devotional life. How often you read your Bible, how meaningful your prayer life is. Uh, We also tend to assume that the, uh, the evidences of a spiritual life are primarily inward and personal and devotional. Well, interesting. that is not how Paul sees it. Not how Paul thinks of it. Uh, he would certainly never discount discount personal devotion. Uh, he wouldn't discount reading Scripture and, and being in prayer. He, he calls us to devote ourselves to those things. But those are means of grace which the Spirit uses to help us grow in the Christian life. And for the Apostle Paul, the, the primary evidence... Of a spirit-filled life is not private, but public. It's not about how well you do your devotions, but how well you treat people. Uh, there was a sign up on the street on Clyde Park here, maybe you've seen it, um, says you're only as pretty as how you treat people. Um, you're only as spirit-filled as, as how you treat other people. That's what um, what Paul wants us to understand. Uh, John Stott says the first and great evidence of being filled with the Spirit is not some private mystical experience of our own, but our practical relationships of love with other people. And so this morning we're going to look then at the principle of the Christian life. Uh, We live by the Spirit. And we'll look at the pattern of the Christian life as where the Spirit moves us to love other people. And then finally we'll look at the power of the Christian life. How are we able to do this? Uh, Let's begin then with the principle of the Christian life, since we live by the Spirit. Um, A Christian is a person who has been born again, born from above, born by the Holy Spirit. That's all biblical language to describe how a Christian comes into existence, comes into being. Uh, It's a person who's been supernaturally born of God and is now supernaturally indwelt by the third person of the Trinity, the Spirit of God. It's it's quite a statement. It's quite a thing to believe. And and every Christian then is a Christian by virtue of the Spirit's work and continues in the Christian life because of the Spirit's ongoing ministry. So when, when we're converted, the Spirit... Uh, regenerates our heart, gives us a new heart and enlightens our mind so we can see the truth about Jesus and treasure the truth about Jesus and, 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 uh, and have faith in Jesus Christ. And that same Spirit then is at work to sanctify us by His power so that the fruits that we just read about uh, are becoming more evident in our life, that, that the, the fruit of the Spirit, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, and goodness and gentleness and, and self-control, these things are, are happening because, we, because the Spirit is not within us. And, and so since the, the, the Christian life is, by definition, a Spirit-wrought life, Paul then tells us, well, keep then in step with the Spirit. If you want to say, what is a Christian supposed to do? Well, that's a pretty tight summary keep in step with the Spirit. Remember last time we, we talked about uh, how if you're uh, uh, marching in, in an army and, and you're, you're just surrounded by soldiers, but you're all in line, and you're, your job is simply to keep in step. That's all you're asked to do. Well, we're called to keep in step with the Spirit. Well, what will that look like? What's going to happen if you're keeping in step with the Spirit? Well, that's where we come to the pattern of the Christian life. And and Paul shows us that what will happen is we have a different view of ourselves that frees us to have a different relationship with others. Let us not, verse 26, immediately after calling us to keep in step with the Spirit, let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying one another. And here again, you see, Paul, when he thinks about a Spirit-filled, Spirit-led Christian life, He's thinking about how we treat other people. Astat says, this is a very instructive verse because it shows that our conduct to others is determined by our opinion of ourselves. Our conduct towards others is determined by our opinion of ourselves. I mean, we know this to be true, uh, but the fact is that the greatest hindrance to actually caring about people is your pride. It's, it's the thing that throws up the, the greatest obstacle. And that pride can be evidence, Paul talks about provoking and envying. The word provoking here is uh, the evidence of a person who feels superior to other people, and so he, he constantly has to prove it. And so he's, uh, he's, he's he tends towards displays of his superiority, which provokes people. The other person is envying. This this, this person feels inferior to other people and he resents it. He he envies what they have. He envies what they know. Envies what they can do. But both responses are driven by pride. The proud, capable person loves to show his superiority. The proud, less capable person uh, resents his inferiority and envies others. And both are a profound failure to love. Well, the Spirit calls us out of that bondage. We've died to that, right? we we put the flesh to death in, in Jesus Christ. That's verse 24. So we're, the Spirit is calling us into um, a Spirit-filled life where we, we lovingly restore those who sin and we bear burdens, the burdens of those who suffer. And so we'll look at those two things. The love that restores, first, in verse 6, verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. You don't have to be in the church very long to recognize that people still sin. And if that um, surprises you, you just haven't been paying attention. That's not a bug in the system. It's a design feature. God meant for the church to be like this. To be full of not yet perfected saints. To be full of people who still think and do and say and feel things that they should not do, think, say, and feel. And people who fail to do the things and say the things that God calls us to do. The the church, we know this, okay? We know that the church is, is full of people who are still struggling, dealing with sin. Well, Paul here is talking about someone who's been caught, trapped, ensnared in a sin, uh, the Greek verb connotes an element of surprise they've been walking the Christian life engaged in the daily uh, battle with the flesh that we all we all deal with but this person has been snared caught um, and maybe something painful has happened to them and we find that they're now given to a pattern of anger or bitterness it's not like them if you've known this person you'd say that it's just it's just Mary doesn't she doesn't act like that. She doesn't talk like that. Something's happened to her. Uh, it can be people who get involved in some form of sexual immorality. They, they have an affair. They get in, into an in illegitimate a relationship. They, they get trapped by pornography. It can be someone who gets uh, snared by drunkenness or by gambling. There's some habit that undermines their Christian life. And they know it's wrong. It's, it's, it's not, And they never intended to be here. They were living their Christian life. But they were ensnared by sin now we've uh, not only seen this happen to other people uh, this has happened to us you've been ensnared by sin haven't you haven't you ever found yourself uh, doing something or thinking something that you that's not you not you in Christ it doesn't belong to you you never intended to be there and there you are well, that that again is normal Christian life is normal life in the church, and and we have a responsibility then to one another to lovingly engage in a ministry of restoration. So the spirit-filled response to someone who's been caught in a sin is not to shrug our shoulders um, and just turn and walk away. It, it's not to, so apathy is an, is an, uh, an option. Uh, gossip certainly isn't an option condemnation is not an option the spirit-filled response will be to engage that brother or sister with healing and restoring intent we have a ministry to perform here and this is a posture that is full of both Strong truth, gospel truth, and gentle grace. So, so you go to the person with God's word and you say, Brother, sister, this is what the word says. You can't do this. Jesus says you, you, you may not, you may not you can't stay here. Jesus calls you to repentance. But we do that with, with a gentleness. The word restore here is a word that's used for mending things like broken bones. Uh, it's it's in, in, in the Gospel of Mark, you find the disciples mending their nets. They're, they're repairing the nets to make the net useful again. Well, that's exactly the ministry that the Spirit calls us to, to engage with a brother or sister <clears throat> uh, with gentleness and so, that, and so that they're made useful for the cause of Christ and the glory of God again. Uh, friends, this is, this is how you can tell if a church is full of the Holy Spirit. Um, how do they deal with people who are trapped by sin, ensnared in sin? Do they ignore it? Um, Do they condemn the sinner? Do they gossip about it? Or Or do they actually lovingly engage in the pursuit of restoration? Are brothers and sisters willing to talk to each other about sin using the pattern of Matthew 18 going to them and, and, and pleading with them and, and then maybe taking someone else along? Are the leaders of the church willing to engage to go after wandering sheep, uh, to speak to them about their sin and, and pursue gentle restoration uh, through the process of discipline if necessary? That's what a spirit-filled church does. In fact, the, the Reformers believe that this ministry is so important, they called it one of the three marks of a true church. Preaching of the word, the uh, proper administration of sacraments, and church discipline, uh, the three marks of a true church. Well, that's uh, uh, an that's appropriate biblical uh, weight to put on that ministry. This, Paul emphasizes that this ministry must be done, but it must be done then in gentleness. It's going to be characterized by the gentleness of Jesus Christ himself. I think one of the most endearing aspects of the grace of God is the gentleness of God's grace. The the Bible's full of, of, of reminders that God is full of compassion and full of mercy, tender mercy. A bruised reed He does not break. He deals so gently with his erring children. Come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest and take my yoke upon you and learn of me for I am gentle and humble in heart. That's Jesus. And friend, hasn't Jesus been gentle with you? Hasn't he been gentle, kind in in spite of your sin and in dealing with your sin? It just amazes me. uh, You know, so often... At the end of the day, I just, just, Lord, thank you for not dealing with me as my sins deserve today, but dealing with me instead according to your steadfast love and mercy. That's what God promises to do. I think it's magnificent how gentle and gracious and tender Jesus is with us. It's it's astonishing. And and, and Jesus calls us then, the Spirit moves us to to take that same gentleness as we deal with the sins of other people. That's what spiritual people do. And they do it in part because we're cognizant of our own weakness. And so Paul will say, um, watch yourself, lest you too be tempted. Remember, uh, take heed when you stand, lest you fall. That we're, we're, all, we're all weak. And so we can be sympathetic with the weaknesses of other people. I just want you to <clears throat> just think about how profoundly different the church should be and must be from the world in this. Um, we live in a mocking, shaming culture that delights to expose the failures of others and demands that people uh, pay for their sins, and yet it offers no forgiveness, no grace, no restoration. There's this, this crazy, uh, or not, cra- there's this profound difference. So the world, in some sense, it, it thinks lightly of, of uh, most sins. Right, if you're sexually immoral, um, the world in, in large part doesn't care unless they can use that to, to, to pin you to the wall. Um, but but if you're if you're uh, if you're greedy, if you're if you if you covet, uh, you envy, uh, you lie, the world thinks lightly of, of of those sins, and yet it loves to mock and shame people when they commit them. The church takes sin very seriously, and yet deals with sinners very gently i was reading an article just this uh, this week about a a young man who decided to become a teacher and he met with his is um the man who had been his teacher in like the fifth grade and he and uh, there this man was old and retired now and he said to him i just want you to know you're the reason i'm a teacher and this old man barely remembered this 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 young man as a student he said well what what was it that uh convinced what did i do and the man said one day uh, in class." so-and-so came up to you and said that their watch had been stolen, and I stole it, and you made everybody uh, stand up, and we, you got us all in the circle, and you announced that, that somebody, uh, somebody had stolen a watch, and you were going to go to every person, and you were going to search their pockets looking for the watch, and he, and he said, <clears throat> and so you made everybody get up, and then you made everyone close their eyes, and you went, you went from person to person to person. He said, when you got to me, you, you put your hand down and there was the watch. And you pulled it out. And then you went and, then you went and sat and he said, and then you had everybody sit down. And he says, you never, you never said anything. You just said, the watch has been found. And everybody sat down. He says, you never shamed me. You never exposed me. It was the most, it was the most embarrassing, shameful moment of my life at that point. And you, you could have nailed me to the wall. And you were so kind. And I decided that if, it, if I could have that kind of impact in the lives of students, and that's what I want to give my life to. Friends, the, the grace of God is magnified a, a million, million times. He's not shamed us. He could have. He could have ex- just exposed us, justly so. But God has not shamed us. God placed all that shame on His own Son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus bore the shame on our behalf. And in light of that, you see, now we're, we are free to love people gently, tenderly, and to bear their burdens. So bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. I love again what Stott points out. He says, Notice the assumption which lies behind this command, namely that we all have burdens and that God does not mean for us to carry them alone. We all have burdens. We have burdens of sorrow and fear and anxiety and failure and loneliness and sickness and disability. Uh, There are financial burdens and relational burdens, uh, burdens related to work and career. Those are all realities that we face, and God does not mean in the church for us to carry them alone. Uh, the, The hymn writer caught it well, right? We share our mutual woes, our mutual burdens bear, and often for each other flows the sympathizing tear. There's a variety of ways we can carry out this ministry. We can promise and, and commit ourselves to praying for one another and letting, letting folks know that. I, it, it is a great encouragement to me uh, when people say, we're praying for your brother Randy. And that, that really matters to me um, because God answers prayer, uses prayer. We can offer a hug and, and, or an encouraging word. We can, we can bring a meal. We can give a gift. We can be a friend. I love hearing stories of how that is happening at Harvest as people are caring for each other. I love hearing when people go through difficult things and they say, I don't know how we ever could have done it without the church. I don't know how people face these things without brothers and sisters around to support and care for them. Let me, just, let me just make a quick plug here for our small group ministry. Um, I was just talking to someone yesterday who was saying, what a blessing their small group has, has been to them as, as they go through times of trial. Uh, and I hear that over and over again. Uh, because they're in small groups, we're forming those, those kinds of relationships where we know each other and can care for each other in very particular ways. If you're not in a small group, I encourage you to join one. If you don't know how to do that, get a hold of, just call the office or talk to Wayne uh, Veenstra. And, um, uh, or Nikki Vierink, but, but take that step. Get, get plugged in so people know you and you know others and you can be carrying out this ministry and be receiving this ministry. And Paul says that as we do that, we're fulfilling the law of Christ, notice. We're fulfilling the law of Christ. Well, what law is that? Well, he talked about it already in verse 14. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is my command, Jesus says in John 15, 12. This is my command, that you love one another as I have loved you. That you love one another as I have loved you. Far too often churches pride themselves on um, their orthodoxy, pride themselves on their maybe um, how rigorously they they, they keep certain practices. Christ calls the church um, to make this the banner. Jesus has loved us and we love each other intentionally, sacrificially, purposefully, we love each other, we bear burdens of one another. Stott again says it's very impressive that to love our neighbor, to bear one another's burdens, to fulfill the law, those are three equivalent expressions. And he says it shows that to love one another as Christ loved us may lead us not to some heroic, spectacular deed of self-sacrifice, but to the much more mundane and unspectacular ministry of burden-bearing. I think that's very encouraging. Uh, Young mothers, do you feel like your spiritual life is being buried under a load of caring for young children? Well, what if that's exactly what most pleases the Lord? What if that's the evidence of a spirit-filled life? That you bear the burdens of being a parent? What if, uh, men, what if the sign of the Holy Spirit at work in your life is an increasing willingness to help, to help your wife, to help your children, to help your neighbor, your brother and sister in Christ, that, that the, the Spirit at work in your life will move you to use your time and your abilities to bless other people, to help them. That's, I think that's tremendously encouraging that God is, is deeply pleased with that. Now, how, how are we going to get the power to do this Because you know you, and I know me. And by nature, I like to serve myself, and so do you. Well, Paul wraps up here with a... um, Talking about the power of love. First of all, a sober self-assessment. Verse 3, if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. That's a great verse. I bet it's not on your fridge. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing... He deceives himself. You know, there are people making a lot of money in the Christian church, right, uh, talking about how amazing you are, how magnificent you are, that God is just thrilled to have you as part of the family. He cannot get over uh, what an incredible being you actually are. That is not in the Bible. It's not in the Bible. When the Bible talks about mankind, it uses images and analogies of transience. We're like a mist in the morning. We're like a dream. We're like uh, the grass that springs up in the morning and by evening it's dead. We're ephemeral, fleeting, transient, made of dust. We're nothing. Now, I mean, in the grand scope of things, the tree in your front yard is going to outlive you. We are fleeting. Yes, we are image bearers, but we're rebellious image bearers, right? We've rebelled against our maker. So Calvin says, we have nothing of our own to boast about, but are destitute of every good thing. And so if there's anything good in us, it's only because of Jesus, only because of what he accomplished for us. And there is a wonderful freedom in accepting that truth. You see, we are nothings who've been infinitely loved. We are nothings who've been eternally and infinitely loved. And now we are free to love others as God has loved us. And Paul then calls us to that in verses 4 and 5. Let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Now that sounds like it contradicts what we just read about bearing each other's burdens. Note there's two different words in the Greek here, burden and load. Uh, Burden is the heavy thing that's pressing down on you. Load, uh, it's like a backpack. This is what Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the calling of a Christian. And Paul is simply saying that we have a calling in Christ to love each other, to bear each other's burdens, to walk with each other. And the way that happens again is by recognizing how nothing we actually are, and yet how loved we are in Jesus Christ. Remember, Paul says, the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I had a, just a reminder of that this past week in high school theology class where we're talking about the doctrine of, uh, of election. And we listened, we watched a short video by John Piper where he asked the question, why is unconditional election good news? Why is unconditional election, the fact that God chose us before the foundation of the world um, for no reason in us whatsoever, why is that good news? And he gave four reasons. One is this, no one can say... I have sinned too much to be elect. No one can say, I've sinned too much to be elect. He says, imagine you're in a counseling situation with, with an unbeliever, and you explain the gospel to him, and he, and he says, well, that sounds like good news for you, but you do not know what I've done. You know, that might, be, that might work for all the squeaky clean people in your church, but you have no idea of the life I've lived and the things that I've done. It could not work for me. And Piper says, if someone would say that to me, I'd, I'd get up from my desk and I'd, I'd walk around, I'd grab them by the collar and I'd say, don't you ever say that. Who are you to say whom God can choose when he reserves that right for himself? Don't, don't say that there's a, there's a list of sins. There's no list of sins. I don't care if it's 10,000 miles long that you can put up against unconditionality. He chose you before the foundation of the world because he decided to. There was nothing in you before you had done anything good or evil. Why? Why did he choose you? You just look around the world today. Seven billion people. Why did he choose you? To give you everlasting life to rescue you from the wrath of God that you deserve. Lord, why was I made to hear your voice and enter while there's room when thousands, millions, billions make a wretched choice and would rather starve than come? Why? Why me? Why you? Because God loved us. He loved us. And in the fullness of time, He gave His Son to us, who loved us and gave His life for us. And in the ocean of that love, friends, that's where we now live, and from that love we give. And from that place of, of, of being so incredibly loved, though we are nothing, you see, we are free to open our eyes and see the burdens of our brothers and sisters. Friends, may may a thousand gentle works of restoration and a thousand loving deeds of burden bearing rise up in this congregation for the glory of God and the health of the church and all by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you have wonderful things in store for us and in mind for us in Christ Jesus. You've made us literally new creations And by the power of the Holy Spirit, Lord, you've called us now to live a new life. Father, I thank you for the church of Jesus Christ. What a privilege it is to belong to the body of Christ. What a privilege it is to belong to Jesus. Who are we that he should die for us? What amazing love. And Father, I thank you that we can share that love and show that love as we we gently restore those who are trapped in sin. As we bear each other's burdens. Father, I pray that we would carry out that ministry with joy and that we would see your Holy Spirit blessed in every way. I pray, Lord, that uh, this would be a congregation where love is experienced and love is uh, given and received, and we taste in all of it the love of Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, you would bless us as we open our hearts to one another and our homes to one another, uh, as we give of our time and our gifts and our treasures to each other. I pray, Lord, that, that whatever we might say about Harvest Church, that we would be able to say it's a church that loves in Jesus, a church that knows how to show gentle grace and gentle restoration. And, Lord, it's a, it's a church that knows how to carry burdens. We ask that you would do this, Lord, for your name's sake, for your glory. Amen.